Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Man, the room feels really empty once the kids leave. I want to, again, welcome you. If you're newer to our church, my name is Dave. It's my privilege to be one of the pastors here at Harvest. And as Pastor Frank already mentioned, we're in the season of Advent. And Advent just means coming. And what we celebrate, what we do during Advent season is we prepare our hearts and our minds for the arrival of Christmas. And we focus our minds on who Jesus is, what he represents, so that when Christmas comes, we can celebrate in a different mindset than maybe the rest of the world. Because the truth is, today, Christmas is not primarily a Christian holiday. It has become a holiday for the whole world. And everyone has laid claim to Christmas for their own reasons. And there's much in secular Christmas even that, that gets us caught up. But we prepare it with Advent because we believe that setting our hearts on Christ is the best way to usher in the Christmas season. Over the, the coming weeks, we're going to look at a number of things. Um, each of the pastors is going to take a turn preaching a message on one of these aspects of who Jesus is for Advent. We're going to hear about Jesus as the King of Kings. We're going to hear about Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. And we're going to hear about Jesus as the Prince of Peace. And finally, on Christmas Eve, uh, on, on our Christmas Eve service, we're going to hear about Jesus as the light of the world. This morning, though, we're going to look at this idea that Jesus is the Savior. I have dug deep into my, my bag of creative sermon names. Don't ever ask me to title your new book. It's just not my strength. And maybe if you've been around the church a while, this idea that Jesus is Savior kind of puts you to sleep. On the night that Jesus was born, some angels appeared to a group of shepherds, and here was their announcement. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, this idea of Jesus being a Savior, I've heard it ever since as early as I can remember, and it's kind of old hat, like, duh, Jesus is Savior. And yet, I wonder if we fully understand why that is such good news. I want to dive into that idea of Jesus being our Savior and explore why we as Christians celebrate that, why so many people, even those who have grown up in the church, have lost the wonder that this is primarily, above all other things, who and what Jesus is to us. I want to explore that through two questions. One is, who needs a Savior? Who needs a Savior? When I was in seminary, I took a course on evangelism. If you can believe this, in seminary, I was preparing to become a pastor, and I had eight courses in ancient languages and one course in evangelism. I think that says something about how we prepare people for ministry these days. I also had one course in counseling. And I can tell you that a lot of my life is spent doing counseling and trying to talk to people about Jesus. And very little of my life is spent studying Greek and Hebrew words. I leave that to people who actually know what they're doing. Because after four years of seminary, I don't pretend that I could possibly contribute something new to our understanding of Scripture during this course on evangelism, one of our assignments was to canvas our entire neighborhood. For me, that was about a hundred and something homes. And we were meant to go door to door. Back in those days, people wouldn't shoot you for doing this. Um, today, it's a little, I'm, I'm a little more hesitant just knocking cold call on people's doors. But back in those days, people would answer their door and talk to you at the door for a while. And so I went door to door asking if people would be willing to hear the good news about Jesus Christ, the Savior. I'm not sure why the professor had us do this, but I think in part it was to show us a snapshot of the spiritual temperature of our area. Even though this was a neighborhood surrounding a seminary, I came to realize that there was a lot of resistance to the gospel. And it was one of the things that woke me up, because I had done so much of my life in church world among those who were already convinced that Jesus was the Savior. I hadn't had this much contact with people who were like, what are you talking about? And here's what surprised me most. I thought I would be in a wrestling match with people over which Savior was the right Savior, 
Was it God? Was it Buddha? Was it, you know, who was it exactly that we're meant to follow? Muhammad? Instead, what I found was great resistance to the idea that anyone needed saving at all. I encountered this home after home after home. Thank you for stopping by, but I don't really need saving from anything. And I understand that, actually. Because if your life is pretty comfortable and stable, and most things are going fairly well, it's hard to imagine, looking at your own life, that you're in need of saving from anything at all. When we talk about Jesus the Savior, we're not talking about someone who adds a little bit of value to an otherwise decent life. That's the way I think so many people in the American church have experienced God, is he's that final accessory for middle-class existence. He rounds out my complete life. I have a great family, I have a great job, now I have a great faith, and I have some security. And that's the way many of us have thought or experienced often what it means to respond to God in America. But a savior isn't needed in anyone's life until they've encountered a point where they have a problem or a need that exceeds all of their available resources. We don't need a savior if we have problems and needs that we can actually save ourselves from. And in a great many of our problems, we and the people who love us can get us through a whole lot of hard stuff. Where Jesus steps in and says he's our savior, he's addressing an issue in our lives that we are utterly powerless to take care of ourselves. And here's the truth. Without Jesus, without God, there are tremendous amount of things that we as mammals can handle in this broken world. But there's a certain place where we hit that we can do nothing for ourselves in that area because we lack the power or the resources. The fact that we need saving in any context is because we no longer can save ourselves in that situation. I want you to imagine that you are out in the open sea, fell all overboard on a ship. When, when we went on a cruise in 2001 with a few couples from Harvest, we went on the top deck, and I remember looking over the edge. This is my worst nightmare, is dark ocean at night. This is my absolute worst nightmare. If I fell overboard, I would die from fright before I hit the water. Imagine you're overboard. Everyone has no idea you're gone, and you're just out in the open sea, and you're losing hope, and you're exhausted. Imagine that after all the treading water, you're pretty much ready to give up. There's nothing in that situation you could possibly do to save yourself. And I want you to imagine how welcome a sight it would be to see the searchlight on a Coast Guard helicopter approaching your location. Seeing that dude in an orange suit coming down on a winch from the airport, to, uh, from the helicopter to save you, how happy you'd be, how you would welcome that person as a savior. Imagine that you're sick and desperately in need of an organ transplant. Through no fault of your own, one of your organs has quit And you can't just go to the organ store and buy one. You need someone willing to donate their organ to you. And they have to be a match. It's an odds game that is stacked against you. And imagine after you've done everything possible, use all your influence, you shout out, you cry out to God, and a donor, a suitable donor, appears. Imagine how you'd feel about that good news. Imagine that you're eating a little too quickly. You forgot to chew thoroughly and you start choking on the food you try to swallow. And before you completely lose your ability to breathe, you shout at a friend and you make some noise and you get their attention. And you know you're going to go quickly because you can't breathe. And that friend runs over to you and administers the Heimlich maneuver. That food comes popping out of your throat and sweet, cool air rushes down your throat again. See, in these situations, you're no longer in a realm where you can do anything about it. You have passed that point where your resources can bail you out. You're entirely at the mercy of what happens next. And it's in those situations that the idea of a savior stops being oppressive and intrusive, and it becomes the greatest thing you could possibly encounter. 
And I understood why I met so much resistance house after house. It was in part because I think all of us, in order to stay sane, minimize our own contribution to the brokenness of the world. We minimize the darkness that's in us. We often walk through life, and myself included, seeing ourselves as victims of a broken and hurtful world. We see ourselves often as noble characters wrongly hurt. And don't, don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean that doesn't happen. But I think in order to stay sane, we really do minimize the bad news about ourselves. It's one of the ways we avert the need to confront how much we actually need a Savior is by saying the bad news isn't actually that bad. I'm not as bad as you're all making it out to be. And of course, when I'm there door-to-door sharing the good news, I'm not saying, you're the most foul person in the world. It's not what I'm saying at all. It's not a personal attack. I'm saying that our whole state as a human race is more broken and more fallen than you can imagine. And if we understood our situation correctly, the promise and hope of a Savior would not be viewed as intrusion, as imposition, it would be viewed as truly good news. If you were that person in need of an organ transplant, would you say to such a person, no thanks, I want, I want to wait for an organ from someone who votes my way? I cannot take an organ from someone who would vote for that guy. At that point, all those other protests would disappear. And you would see in that person your great hope to survive. And in these situations where we need saving, we really only have a very small role. Our only role is to signal or cry out that we need help and then accept that help when it comes. That's it. We don't contribute anything more to the process of our being saved than to stop fighting it. You know, they say that when you're a lifeguard, you're trying to rescue a drowning person, you got to be careful because that drowning person will use you as a flotation device. So sometimes that person is fighting the very person trying to save them. The only role you have in being saved is to receive the help, to stop flailing, to stop fighting, to stop getting in the way of the person saving you. It's not comfortable for us to be put in that situation in any context where I'm absolutely dependent on another being for my survival. In Romans 5, 6, by the way, Romans 5, 1 to 11 is one of the most beautiful, powerful portrayals of the gospel. In verse 6, Paul writes, you see, at just the right time, and get this, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. When Jesus saves us, he saves us at a point where we can finally recognize, I can't do anything about my spiritual state. I can't do anything to make myself more righteous than I am. I can't do anything to repair this darkness inside of me that constantly wants to come out. In a string of good days, I can manage that darkness, but I can't make it go away. There's something inside of each of us that is ugly and dark. And with all our best efforts, we cannot take care of that problem by ourselves. I also cannot travel back in time and undo the damage of every bad thing I've done in my life. And can we all just admit together, as much as people have hurt us, we have done a great deal of damage to other people as well. We've done a great many things that we're ashamed of, things we know in our hearts were wrong. At the time, we felt like maybe we couldn't help ourselves, but we know we had choices, we had agency, and yet we did them. I can't do anything about that, neither can you. Those things are done. They are forever in history. And that stays with us. It marks us. The fact that we have done wrong, and we can do nothing to undo that wrong, it marks us. And it's only when we realize how powerless we are to do anything about that profound problem that we begin to see in Jesus that hope that he actually can save us. Pastor Tim Keller, who ministered for a very long time in New York City, famously said, the gospel is this. 
We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. I think the reason so many people resisted my door-to-door evangelism, back then I thought maybe because I stunk at it, maybe I did, but I realize it's hard to see yourself as powerless to fix a problem deep inside. Some of us have carried a bitterness, an anger, a darkness, that no matter how much we know it's destroying us, we have felt powerless to get rid of it. Partly because that anger and that that bitterness is rooted in historical events we cannot undo. Some of us have a, a darkness inside of us that rages out at times, and it scares us. How do I act like this sometimes? Where does this come from? Why do I do this? And yet, try as we might, we have felt powerless to control that thing inside of us. And the good news of Jesus is he recognizes that as our fundamental human condition, and that is the thing he wants to deliver us from. So that leads us naturally to the second and last question, What is it exactly that Jesus saves us from? And this is perhaps the more important question, because how we answer this question determines how we look at Jesus. There's a sense in the modern evangelical church that what Jesus saves us from is the brokenness of our world and the way that the broken world has broken us. That's what draws a lot of people to churches, is hope that the brokenness of the world can somehow be undone and reversed here in this special place. And I totally understand why we'd be drawn to that idea. And so we might say that Jesus came to save us or deliver us from things like loneliness, that sense of isolation that comes from not being able to find belonging with anyone, not being able to find my tribe to which I truly belong, heart to heart. Maybe we can say that Jesus comes to save us from injustice, from the misuse of power and authority from people who are immoral and unjust. Maybe we can say that Jesus came to save us from poverty, from a helpless lack of resources to meet the most basic needs of our life. Maybe we can believe that Jesus came to rescue us and save us from our regrets, And I define regret as clarity about things we've done when it's too late to make a difference. Lists could go on and on and on. And there's a sense in which we look to Jesus and say, this is what I want saving from, are the problems in my life, the brokenness of this world, the felt needs that ache and tug at my heart. And here's the truth. Make no mistake, God cares so deeply about those things. He cares really deeply about the brokenness of our world and about the way that that broken world has broken us. His heart breaks over that. And the gospel does have implications for repairing that brokenness. But if we're not careful, we can slip very easily into a distorted gospel, a therapeutic gospel that tells us what we are above all things are victims of a terrible world. And that because we are victims, we have been hurt and broken and wounded by that world, and that is the only real story in our lives. And that what Jesus needs to save us from is the damage done to us by others. Don't hear the wrong thing. God cares deeply about the damage others have done to us. But the thing that Jesus comes to save us from isn't only what was done to us. Before Jesus was born, an angel appeared to his earthly father, Joseph. And it was a good timing for that visit because Joseph finds out that his would-be wife is pregnant and they haven't slept together. I don't know how you'd feel if you were a young man about to get married and you're soon-to-be bride said, I'm about to have a baby, and it's God's. Understandably, he's a little weirded out by the whole thing. And so the angel comes to visit Joseph 
in a vision. And one of the things he says to Joseph is this. Don't leave Mary. By the way, Pastor Frank read this passage at the start of the service. She'll bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Before Jesus delivers us from the brokenness of our lives, he first delivers us from the brokenness in our lives. The main thing Jesus saves us from is not the damage others have done to us, but the sin and sinfulness that resides in each of us. And this doesn't need to be a quantity contest. Who did more bad things to who? Each one of us has a fundamental problem standing before God, and that is that there is sin and sinfulness in each one of us that has created a host of problems between us and God and between us and other people and even between us and our very selves. It's fractured those relationships. The first thing that Jesus saves us from is the consequences and guilt and power of our own sin and our own sinfulness. And I, re- I define sin and sinfulness really as that foundational rejection of the rule and authority and standards of God over our lives. Choosing instead to follow and obey the rule of our own hearts, even when we know that that leads to choices that might be selfish or immoral or destructive to ourselves and others. Human sin is what breaks the world. If we say that Jesus mainly came to save us from things like loneliness and injustice and poverty and regret, that is to suggest that Jesus' main agenda is to treat symptoms and not cure the disease. Because at the heart of every one of those areas of brokenness in our world is the fundamental disease of sin and sinfulness in each one of us. We all contribute to that. Do you realize that if every one of us loved unselfishly and sacrificially, if we each of us had eyes of tenderness and compassion, loneliness would disappear in the world because everyone would be seen and cared for, made room for at the table, included, but that doesn't happen. And it's not just all those people out there. There are people in our own lives who feel excluded by us. They may not tell you. You may not know it. But we have participated in the loneliness of others. Sometimes the very person who shares our own house with us is dying of loneliness right next to us. If every person used authority and power humbly, respectfully, justly, righteously, there would be no injustice in the world. Everyone with power would use it for the benefit of others to improve things and not just to improve their own situation. That doesn't happen, but I know this. We have all misused power and authority given to us. If we were willing not to hoard our things, not to be wasteful, to share sacrificially, even to impoverish ourselves for the betterment of another, poverty would disappear overnight in this world. But it doesn't. And if we always did what the Spirit of God prompts us to do, what the Word of God tells us to do, our regrets would vanish. But they don't. Because knowing the wrong, we nonetheless choose that wrong time and time again. Jesus did not come first and foremost to treat the symptoms of a broken world but to cure the disease that has broken the world in the first place. And that's really important because today it's that fundamental diagnosis of the disease of sin and sinfulness that is being debated everywhere. People cannot really accept that that is an issue in our lives. And I understand why. It's much easier to point to the way another person has damaged us than to look inward and say, God, what I really need is you. 
Now, if you are in Christ, this message is not primarily for you. It's simply to remind you that is what Jesus delivered you and me from if we are in Christ. He's been doing a work of transforming that darkness in us. And as he changes us through our lives, he begins to treat the symptoms of the broken world. But his main mission on this earth was to redeem us from sin and sinfulness. It is through us that he is gradually redeeming the world. That is the gospel plan. And here's why that's so important. If we believe that Jesus came to treat loneliness and regret and injustice and poverty, then our joy over that salvation is postponed. It's so conditional because we look around and say, well, he's not done a very good job of it. I'm still waiting for justice to come in my life. I still feel lonely. What the heck? What gives? I turned to Jesus. He didn't save me from all my problems. But if we understand that the main thing Jesus saves us from is our own sin and our sinfulness, if we see ourselves rightly and realize, my goodness, there is such a darkness in me, and he has released me from it, the joy is immediate. Because I understand now that what I receive in front of Jesus is not the fixing of every problem I have in a broken world, but the most fundamental problem I carried into the world. That main thing must be repaired by Jesus before any other repair can be attempted in this world. Apart from it, there is no hope for us to do anything to make the world any different. This is the good news of Jesus the Savior, is that he doesn't just treat symptoms. And if, have you ever just looked at the world and said, there's no, there's no way we're going to fix this. It's too broken. It's too broken. I love fixing stuff. I love trying to salvage stuff in my house that other people would throw away. I don't know what it is about me, but there is a point at which I weigh the white flag, and I realize someone broke this so badly, it's not worth the time or energy to try to fix it. It's too much. And I feel that way sometimes about our world. Don't you? I mean, and it's not just other people. I look at myself and go, I can't even fix this. Have you ever been most frustrated at yourself and your total inability to change you? My goodness, if I can't change the one person I live inside, how am I going to try to attempt to change the whole world? And I look at the size of that repair job and I think, it's too much. And yet that's the very problem which Jesus came to solve. His name, Yeshua, literally translates to God saves. And what he saves us from is our sin and our sinfulness. Let me further the story just a bit. In Isaiah 59, verses 1 to 2, this is like 700 years before Jesus' birth. Isaiah proclaims this to the people of Israel. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. What the prophet Isaiah is trying to portray in, in word pictures is that because of what we have done, our sin, our iniquity, it has created a gap in the relationship between us and God so that he has hidden his face from us. The image is really of turning away and aside so that he does not see and he does not hear. Now, something about that kind of bothers me. And I think it bothers a lot of people today because I feel like God shouldn't turn away from any of us. But it, it is really because of the holiness of God that he cannot just be okay with that. And, and I think today we have a problem with this idea that God would separate himself from us because of our conduct. And yet that shouldn't really surprise us because in any relationship between two real persons, Betrayal breaks the relationship. 
Let me ask you, do any of you have friends that aren't friends anymore? Have you unfriended anyone in real life? Yeah. <laughs> Some of us are like, am I allowed to raise my hand? Some of us are proud of it. Yes, I mean, we've all unfriended and been unfriended by people because betrayal fractures relationships. There are people I've hurt who continue for weeks on end to sit and have, they struggle listening to me preach, and I get that completely. Because you can't just separate one thing from another. You can't go, well, you hurt me in our private lives, but in this case, I'll listen to you speak. They're so related because human persons, real beings, fracture when there's betrayal and offense. You can't just pretend it doesn't affect the relationship at all. How will we expect it to be any different with God? What we do before God, the offenses we commit, the betrayals that we carry out, they fracture the relationship that we have with God. It opens up a separation between us and Him. And Paul continues in the New Testament, 700 years later, to expound further on the bad news. He's writing now to Christians, but reminding the Christians how they once used to live, the state from which God has delivered them. And he says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts And like the rest, listen, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Among pastoral circles, we call the wrath of God a crowd reduction topic from the pulpit. If you want to shrink your church, talk about the wrath of God, because people don't like to hear that God is angry. The wrath of God is not a popular church growth strategy today. But the unmistakable truth is that God feels wrath over the sin and sinfulness of human beings. Now, don't project onto God at this moment the stern face of your father if he was a particularly angry and self-righteous person. This isn't the anger of of a self-unaware, angry person or a magistrate staring down his nose uncaringly at a citizen as he delivers a sentence. You know, the wrath of God is more deeply personal because the wrath of God cannot be separated from the love of God. You know, the thing about us as humans is when we feel wrath, we turn off the love, don't we? Have you ever felt that immediately with a loved one? You're like, oh, we're doing so well, and then you got mad, and all of a sudden, you shut down the love algorithm, and all of a sudden what comes out is, "I I hate you, I want you out of my life, I have no feelings for you. Have you ever seen this experiment where the mom does the, 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 the neutral face experiment with the little infant? They're like, hi, baby. Hi. And all of a sudden, she goes like this and just stares. And the baby is so distressed because the mom's not giving any feedback. It's like the mom turned off the connection and love engine, and the baby doesn't know what to do and starts screaming. We all know that when we're angry, we turn off the love until the anger has run through the pipes. But the love of God and the wrath of God cannot be separated. That's confusing at first, but it's beautifully portrayed in passages like Jeremiah 2. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I encourage you to read it. And so in the sermon recap email, I'm going to present the entire second chapter of Jeremiah without verse numbers. I just want you to read it as the cry of God's heart because it is a beautiful, poetic depiction of the way God holds and wears his wrath. This is not the wrath of a self-righteous, angry father who doesn't think he does anything wrong. It is the love of a father who knows he has done everything possible to make a good life for the children he loves, and he watches them abandon him, turn away from him, and forfeit the life he has worked so hard to give. And it's an anger that comes not just at them, but for them. It's an anger, a wrath mixed with a broken heart, and it's so powerfully portrayed in the words of the prophet Jeremiah. And that's not the only example in Scripture. Time and time again, God expresses His wrath not the way maybe our earthly fathers did, 
but the way a heavenly father would. If you have children and they're past the teenage years, it's the heart you would have as you watch a child you have loved to the best of your ability all your life. You've sacrificed for, provided for, cared for, and watch that child walk away, do self-destructive things, turn away from everything you wanted for them, forfeit the life you hoped they would have. And it's not that you're judging them or angry at them. It's that you're brokenhearted and grieving. You're angry at what their life has become at what they've given up, the way that they have misportrayed your intent, the way they've rejected your authority because they thought all you wanted to do was steal their joy and freedom, and they wanted a better way. But you know your heart. All you ever wanted was for the fullness of life. It's that heart that we call the wrath of God. There's a reason That the Bible, in in his own words, God describes himself in this way. I am love. So that even when he is expressing wrath, it's never the way we express wrath as human beings. Don't ever project onto God what you are when you're angry. Ever. The wrath of God is not your wrath. It's not my wrath. The wrath of God is a beautiful, powerful thing altogether. One of the great ironies of the modern world that we're so capable of human wrath against anyone we think is ruining the world, and yet we refuse to let God have his wrath. The wrath of God is, in my opinion, the only justifiable wrath in the universe. He had such a beautiful design for this creation and for human flourishing. And the only thing that broke that plan was his, the rejection of God in the human heart. It was our rebellion. It is that fundamental problem which Jesus Christ comes to repair. There are a lot of offenses that can be covered over by an apology that's sincere. And people today have become very good at the automated apology. You can say what you really mean on Twitter one day, and the next day your publicist can make you write out a perfect apology, and everyone's cool with it because at least you owned it. And a lot of things can be fixed with an apology. A real sincere, I'm so sorry, I don't mean that, that's not what I stand for, please forgive me. And you can fix a lot. But there's a level of violation and betrayal, a level of offense that cannot simply be waved away that casually. Something has to be done commensurate to the offense. The break was so pronounced that we're not going to get over it with just an apology. At some point, the justice of God had to be satisfied. The reality that our choices, the exercise of our free will, created such a break from God that he had no choice but to cast us away from him, that had to be fixed somehow. And what we believe Jesus accomplished on the cross for us is he reopened a door that was closed to us. That's so important. Sorry, my Siri keeps... Talking to me out of the blue. Stop it. I'm not talking to you. There are some things you can't just say, hey, my bad. And Jesus took that offense and he said, I must reopen that door because these people cannot claw their way way back to God. They cannot make themselves somehow acceptable, reclaim access to God. You know how when you've really wronged someone, it's not the sincerity of your apology that will accomplish reconciliation. You can mean it with all your heart, be filled with remorse, but if that person doesn't at some level decide to reopen their heart to you, your apology has no power. Your repentance has no power. Repentance is only as powerful as the other party's willingness to acknowledge it. What Jesus did through his death was he opened the way for God to be able to accept our repentance as a way of reconciling the relationship between us and him. 
He made good the apology of our repentance by reopening God's capacity to have relationship with us. Because he satisfied that need for something to be done about the break that occurred between us and him. We like to pretend sometimes at church that it's the sincerity of our hearts that accomplishes everything. If you pray with all your heart, if you apologize with all your heart, and all that matters, but it matters for nothing if God himself isn't open to us. And the good news we celebrate at Christmas is that in the birth of Jesus, the announcement from God to the human race was, I am now open to you. There is a road back for us to have a relationship. We can rejoin one another in building this creation together. So let me end this way. How are we supposed to respond to Jesus as Savior? I want to give you two responses depending on where you are with respect to Jesus. And the first is this. If you have never recognized your own sin and sinfulness truly, seen in it how absolutely powerless you were to restore a relationship with God. If you've ever decided somewhere in your heart you don't need Jesus to validate you or forgive you or save you from anything, can I invite you to reconsider your position? God has created us to know him and to love him and over the course of that relationship to become more like him. And through that experience, that relationship, he has created us to experience a fullness of life which this world and its best days cannot hope to offer us. And our rejection of God blocks us from all that he holds out before us. And so that describes you, and I'm saying this, even if you have attended church physically, bodily, for years and years, if you've never made that fundamental decision between you and Jesus to acknowledge your own desperate need for him in your heart, I want to offer you the invitation of Acts 3, 19 to 20. Now, repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. This is how anyone becomes a Christian. We don't become a Christian by acting a certain way or believing a certain thing. We become a Christian by bringing this admission before God, Acknowledging our powerlessness and asking him to wipe away our sin. That is what makes a person a Christian. It's the way every journey began. It is precisely why Christians should be the least self-righteous, least judgmental people on all the earth. God forgive us for all the times that in our fleshliness we have been self-righteous and judgmental and arrogant towards other people because every one of us is a Christian not because we did something right, but because God forgave us and wiped away our sins. If anyone on this earth should stop being judgmental, stop being self-righteous, it is us. And I extend this invitation to you if you've never received the forgiveness of Jesus. Sitting in this room does nothing for your spiritual condition apart from this. This is his invitation to you every day until it happens. And if you've been resisting, believing that somehow by, by acknowledging this, you would lose something, can I please ask you to reconsider and understand that you are being promised and offered more than you will give up? Let me offer a second response. If you have already come to Jesus and trusted him to be your savior. Here is how you respond to Jesus the savior now. In 1 Corinthians 5:14 to 15, Paul writes for Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. 
And he died for all that those who live, listen to this, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. If you follow Jesus as Savior and know that the life you live is not a life you've made for yourself, but a life which he has given to you as a free gift, a life undeserved with fullness unearned, then the only right response for the Christ follower to Jesus the Savior is to stop living for ourselves ever again. If there should be anyone in this world who is not a hoarder or a selfish person, it should be those who are saved by the one who gave up his very life for us. We Christians should be the least selfish people on the planet. And God forgive us for the many times in our fleshliness we put ourselves and our loved ones above everyone else. We made sure we were comfortable and secure before we made sure someone else could live. God forgive us for the times we've done that. If we want to respond to Jesus the Savior today as Christ followers, we will honor him so well by recommitting our hearts to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who gave us life. So can I offer you this as an invitation at Advent? Because I think the majority of us in this room know Jesus is our Savior. I invite you to make this your response. I want it to be my response. God knows I need so much more to grow in this. Can we also commit together as a church that from this day forward, God help us, we will be the least judgmental, least self-righteous, least selfish human beings in this whole world because of the way that Jesus, our Savior, saved us. There's a lot to chew on there. A great deal of it has to be processed between you and God in private. But I want to invite you in this moment right now, as the praise team comes back up, I just want to invite you to have a moment where you just respond in the quiet of your own heart. And here's the one thing I would ask of you is, I know that right now it's possible for thoughts of other people to rush into your heart. I'm going to ask you if you would try your best to push those away for a moment and just bring yourself before God, just you, in the condition of your true heart right now. Whichever of these two responses you really need to make, I invite you to make that response. I truly urge you, don't just sit neutrally, at least engage the struggle inside your own spirit. And let's just respond to God, who now offers himself to us as Savior. I'll just give us a minute in quiet to do that, and I'll pray for us, and we'll sing before we close. If you find that you're sitting in this church right now, maybe it's the hundredth time you've been in a church. Maybe it's only the second, first. But if you find you're sitting here and realize that you have never really had this kind of encounter with Jesus. If for you, Christianity has been about a belief system, about a morality, a way of living, can I invite you just in this moment to open your heart to what Jesus is saying to you? You don't become a Christian simply by choices you make, things you believe, the ways that you act. But he's inviting you just to lay bare before him the truth about yourself and say, God, save me. I can't undo any of this that's in me. Wipe it away. I can spend the rest of my life learning how to belong to you, but I can't make myself belong to you. So come and get me, God. Would you just for a moment just lower your guard and invite God to do that in your life? As we wrap up, I think the greater majority in this room 
we would say that we know and follow Jesus, that he is our Savior. I believe that with all my heart. Draw hope from that. Remember who you once were before Jesus met you, the state you were in. And remember that in just a moment, in an instant, he wiped away all that guilt. He opened a door that was locked to you. And as Romans 5 tells us, we now have access to the grace in which we now stand. What a beautiful picture. I've heard it said that self-righteous and selfish Christianity is the greatest barrier to the gospel in our world. If you name Jesus as Savior, can I invite you in this moment right now to rededicate your heart to no longer live for yourself, for the one who saved you. God, we remember for those of us who know you, who have trusted you, we remember what it felt like when we didn't call you Savior, when we carry the weight of our own guilt everywhere, when we try to make it through this hard life without the ability to call on you. And we thank you, God, that at just the right time, while we were still powerless, you showed yourself to us and you redeemed us. God, we pray that remembering that would make us humble, would make us selfless. Today, receive from your church the recommitment of our hearts to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for you. And we pray for any in this room today who for the first time in their lives made a confession that they are sinful and in need of your forgiveness. That you would give them the joy of their salvation and the lightness of spirit that comes instantly from knowing that they no longer carry the weight of that guilt, but it has been wiped away those things for which they have been so ashamed, so heavy-hearted, carrying it around all these years, give them the lightness of taking that off of them and carrying it on your own shoulders. Jesus, today we celebrate you as Savior of the world. Thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.